The year is 1997. The month, May. And we're in Los Angeles. In the nondescript L.A. County Criminal Courts building on West Temple Street, Detective George Mueller sits in his tiny office next to the elevator shaft. Here he works as a senior investigator with the DA's Bureau of Investigation. Mueller has a classic cop's physique, broad-shouldered and imposing. He favors crisp white shirts and sober suits. His dark hair is lightly receding. His gaze is steady and uncompromising. There's sympathy in his expression, but it's obvious he's nobody's fool. Mueller joined the Bureau in 1985. His previous job was with the local police department in his hometown of Alhambra. His first case in L.A. was a baptism of fire, tracking down witnesses to the crimes of the serial killer Richard Ramirez, known as the Night Stalker. Ramirez killed 13 people and terrorized many more in a 14-month violent crime spree. Most recently, Mueller's become a fraud specialist. Generally, the criminals he's up against these days aren't cold-blooded monsters with dead-eyed stares. Often, they're likable charmers with winning smiles. They may not kill their victims, but he's seen callous fraudsters destroy lives. Mueller's desk phone rings. Every time he picks up that phone, he has no idea what might be about to hit him. It could be a vital witness in a case he's already working, or the start of a new investigation that'll take over his life. That's the kind of detective Mueller is. There are no half measures. Once a case hooks him, his commitment is total, almost to the point of obsession. Mueller hears an agitated man's voice. It's hard to understand everything the guy's saying, not just because of his thick foreign accent, but because the words are tumbling out in a garbled rush. Mueller eventually makes out that the caller is one Ali Amgar. So he tells Mueller to call him Benny. Everyone does. Now, Benny tells Mueller of this complicated story. At times, Mueller struggles to keep up. It all seems to center around Benny's former boss, a man called Christoph Rokenkor. Well, that's one of the names he goes by. He also calls himself Christopher De Laurentiis and claims he's the nephew of top Hollywood producer Dino De Laurentiis. Other times, he's Christopher De La Renta, nephew of the famous designer Oscar De La Renta. It all depends on who he wants to impress. As Mueller knows, L.A. is full of fantasists. But has this guy actually broken any laws? Yes, insists Benny. Plenty. Rokencore is a con man. He's duped the rich and famous of L.A. out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And not just the rich and famous. Rokencore also has a nasty habit of cheating regular people out of their life savings. According to Benny, Rokencore's technique is the oldest con trick in the book. He poses as a wealthy investor who spends his days putting together lucrative business deals. The scam to work, he has to come across as Mr. Big, the man for whom money is no object. Impressed by his conspicuous wealth, his victims hand over cash for Rokencore to invest, but they're never seeing their money again. 
The so-called investments, they're all bogus. Rokencore just uses the money to fund his lavish lifestyle, drawing more victims into his web of deception. Mueller's hooked. If half of what Benny has said is true, Rokencore is a financial fraudster on a grand scale, just the kind of criminal Mueller enjoys putting away. He arranges for Benny to come in and make a formal statement. Detective Mueller hangs up the phone and continues his day as normal. What he doesn't know is that one of the wildest cases of his career has just begun. At times, it'll feel like he's chasing a phantom, a shadowy mastermind who slips through his fingers just when he thinks he's caught him. He knows that his adversary is a man of multiple identities. The ones he shows the public are that of a charismatic genius and a friend of the stars, carefully constructed masks that obscure a dark truth. During his investigation, Detective Mueller will unmask Rokencore for who he really is, a ruthless sociopath. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're following LA investigator George Mueller as he hunts down a slick con man who has a knack for persuading wealthy victims to part with their money and an even greater talent for evading arrest. Mueller's elusive adversary draws him into a real-life game of cat and mouse. Though it isn't always clear who's the cat and who's the mouse. From Noiser, this is the story of the King of La La Land. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. When Benny comes into the bureau, he tells Mueller more about Rokencore's M.O. The Frenchman lives in a suite of rooms at the Regent Beverly Wilshire Hotel, where the staff treat him like royalty. He drives a silver Ferrari, while his wife Pia has her own Jaguar. The couple are seen in the best restaurants and nightclubs. The Don Perignon flows freely, with Rokencore always picking up the tab. He flashes bundles of banknotes as he peels off generous tips. He can get you everything. Drugs, sex, cars, art, whatever you want. You see, it's not just money he trades in, it's desire. In the city of dreams, he's the one that can make yours come true. He's the king of La La Land. His victims are drawn to him by his ostentatious lifestyle. The thinking is, this guy has obviously made a fortune for himself. Maybe he can help me do the same. The first thing Rokencore does is befriend the people he's going to fleece. Then, he offers his friends the opportunity to get in on the same kind of deals that have made him rich. Now let's say you've got $15,000 you want to invest. Rokencore promises to turn it into 150000 Or he'll take 150000 and turn it into a million and a half. Now, if these returns sound too good to be true, it's because they are. 
a legitimate investment can deliver a tenfold ROI, or even a quadruple, triple, or double return. So why do people believe him? And why do they trust him with their money time and time again? The simple answer is, people believe what they want to believe. After his chat with Benny, Mueller runs the name Christoph Rokencore through the Interpol database. He gets a match. Back in 1991, somebody by that name was wanted by the Swiss police in connection with a diamond robbery in Geneva. A gang of three armed men took a female jewelry store worker hostage overnight and the next day forced her to open the safe. The thieves made off with about $400,000 worth of valuables. The police suspected Rokencore was one of the gang, but failed to arrest him. Somehow, he made his way to Los Angeles. Next, Detective Mueller checks with the FBI and discovers more disturbing information about his suspect. In 1992, the FBI, working on behalf of the Swiss police, tracked Rokencore to the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco, where he was rumored to have an Uzi machine gun and two hand grenades. He allegedly threatened to put two bullets in a hotel employee's brain. After the FBI arrested him, Rokencore was extradited to Geneva, but the Swiss authorities were unable to make the jewelry theft charges stick. Then, Rokencore resurfaces in Paris, where he was arrested for historic fraud offenses. After serving a short prison sentence, he somehow managed to get back into America, where he reinvented himself as Christopher De Laurentiis. Mueller's discovered enough to open an official investigation now. He's not just dealing with some charming rogue. Rokencore is a potentially violent criminal, skilled in escaping justice. Mueller's first move is to contact Rokencore's victims, beginning with those who have lost the most. Top of the list is a French pop singer called Michel Ponoreff. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects, the vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Mueller has to admit that when Benny first mentioned the name Polnareff, it didn't mean anything to him but he's been doing a bit of research. He's learned that the gaming-faced androgynous Polnareff was a huge star in France in the 1960s and 70s, releasing a chain of hit singles and performing sell-out tours. At one point in his career, 
He shared the billing with Jeff Beck and cut a record with Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. By the time Polnareff meets Rokencore, he's in his 50s and enjoying a major comeback after the 1990 release of his commercially successful album, Kama Sutra. He may look a little like a caricature of an aging pop star with his bleached bubble perm and oversized dark glasses, but Michelle Polnareff is riding high. Benny has told Mueller the story of how Rokencore ensnared Polnareff. Let's travel back in time here to the moment when the two men first met. The encounter takes place in Café Maurice, a mecca for French expats living in L.A. With its dark interior and Toulouse-Lautrec posters, it's like wandering off a Los Angeles boulevard into a Parisian bistro. It's one of Polnareff's favorite places in L.A. One night, he's drawn towards a group of beautiful people and gets chatting to one of them, a charming young Frenchman called Christophe Rokencore. Somehow, the conversation gets round to Polnareff's worries about security, given his recent success and the wealth that came with it. Polnareff believes he's a target for kidnapping. He admits that he'd feel safer if he had a gun, but being a Frenchman, it's impossible for him to get a U.S. gun permit. Rokencore leans in. He tells Polnareff he may be able to help. There's something called an international gun permit. It's not easy to get one. It can be very expensive. But Rokencore says he can make it happen. Like all con men, Rokencore is patient. The first step is simply to plant the seed in your mark's head. Then, wait for it to germinate. The very last thing you should do is press your victim for money. The aim is to engineer a situation where they're pushing money on you. The two men's paths cross frequently now. Polnareff brings up the international gun permit again. Rokencore promises to get him one. He just needs Polnareff to pay the fees up front in cash, naturally. That'll speed things up. Polnareff hands over close to $100,000. Not surprisingly, his international gun permit never materializes. You see, there's no such thing as an international gun permit. Meanwhile, Rokencore continues to milk Polnareff for everything he can before their relationship sours, as it inevitably will. In all, it's estimated that Rokencore swindled around a quarter of a million dollars from Polnareff. Surely Polnareff will want justice. If Mueller can get him to talk, then maybe they can put together some charges to pin on Rokencore. But Polnareff is a difficult man to get a hold of. He never picks up the phone and doesn't return any of the detective's calls. And when Mueller finally does get through to him, he refuses to get involved. Mueller has no choice but to leave him out of his case. It's the same story when Mueller tries to speak to Rokencore's other wealthy victims. It seems most of them just prefer to shrug off their losses and avoid a scandal. After all, being taken for a fool is, well, embarrassing. It's hard for people to admit that they have been conned. So maybe Mueller needs to find one of Rokencore's victims who isn't wealthy, 
someone with more to lose. Benny tells him about a guy called Buddy Ochoa. Buddy had just lost his job when he met Rokencore. He'd got 10 grand or so in the bank, but living in L.A., he was burning through it faster than a California wildfire. To make ends meet, he was working as a movie stand-in and just happened to be filming at the Regent Beverly Wilshire when Rokencore was staying there. The two men got chatting. Rokencore took Buddy for a ride in his silver Ferrari, and then he took him for everything he had. Mueller contacts Buddy. Unlike Polnareff, Buddy tells the detective everything. Mueller can hear the anguish in the other man's voice. It's a sad story. Rokencore offered Buddy the chance to get in on a Japanese financial deal, which would turn $20,000 into $80,000 in a matter of weeks. But Buddy only had half the amount needed. So he persuaded his parents to stump up the rest. Naturally, Rokencore insisted on cash to speed things up. Buddy handed over the money and never saw it again. All his attempts to get it back have amounted to nothing. Rokencore is no longer returning Buddy's calls. Mueller asks Buddy if he has any receipts, any contract, any paper trail at all. But there's nothing. Which means no evidence of a crime ever being committed and very little chance Buddy will ever see his money again. There's not much Mueller can do for Buddy, or that Buddy can do for him. Given all the obvious crimes he's committed, you might have thought nailing Rokencore would be easy. But a lack of willing witnesses and a shortage of evidence means Mueller has his work cut out for him. He knows the only way you get results is to focus on the details, looking for the one small discrepancy that could bring down Mr. Big. Just like how they caught Al Capone by going after him for tax evasion, not murder. Mueller decides it's time to get similarly creative. In Benny's original statement, he happened to mention that Rokencore is in possession of an American passport. As a French national, he must have acquired this illegally. As insignificant as it sounds when compared to his other crimes, this passport fraud could be the key to taking down Rokencore. Mueller talks the case over with the assistant DA, who agrees it'll be the easiest to prove. But he has to work fast. He knows that the moment Rokencore suspects the police are onto him, they'll disappear without a trace, skip town, change his identity, and resurface somewhere else. Before long, he'll be up to his old tricks again, but in a new jurisdiction, completely out of Mueller's reach. The clock is already ticking. By the end of May 1997, George has his ducks in a row. He applies for and is granted a search warrant on the basis of suspected passport fraud. He puts together a team of sheriff's deputies and leads them into the Regent Beverly Wilshire. The army of officers looks wildly out of place in the palatial lobby. Their heavy boots stomping on the immaculate tile as they pass beneath the enormous crystal chandelier. Heads turn, jaws drop, the lobby falls silent. As George Mueller walks his team toward the elevator, his stride is purposeful and brisk. George knows they don't have a moment to lose. 
In fact, they may already be too late. As a special unit storms in a Rogancor suite, Rogancor's wife, Pia, holds her baby son in her arms. She looks on, aghast, as the deputies find guns, several high-end pieces of jewelry, and reams of potentially incriminating paperwork, including details of the $40,000 Rokencore now owes the Regent Beverly Wilshire. But one thing they don't find is Rokencore. Mueller's moved as quickly as he could, but Rokencore is one step ahead of him. Maybe someone got word to him that the raid was planned. Does that mean that Rokencore has sources inside the DA's office? No. Mueller can't bring himself to believe that. It's just that the Frenchman has a sixth sense. He can always tell when the jig is up and it's time to move on. He has, after all, been at this con game a long time. Mueller walks up to Pia as she tries to console her baby. She's in tears, too, now. He asks her where Rokencore is, but she claims she doesn't know. Somehow, he believes her. Rokencore is exactly that kind of man who would run out on his family, leaving his distraught wife with debts to pay and questions to answer, literally holding the baby. The detective can't help thinking of Pia as another of Rokencore's victims. So where is Rokencore? Mueller hears a rumor that he's made it out to the Far East. A few months later, another rumor places him in Europe. Wherever he is, he's beyond Mueller's reach. Meanwhile, Mueller's not going anywhere. He's stuck in his office by the elevator shaft, sorting through crates of evidence. There's some interesting finds. A signed photograph of Michael Jackson, an address book, with the names and numbers of Hollywood actors, Mickey Rourke, Dolph Lundgren, Jean-Claude Van Damme, even Robert De Niro. Are these all really Rokencore's friends? Or has he somehow just conned them into handing over their phone numbers? As Mueller turns the pages, he has a glimpse into a life that's far removed from his own. A life where paparazzi camp outside restaurants, feeding off celebrities who want to be consumed, where ruthless business tycoons mix with the Hollywood A-listers, where who you are is defined by who you're seen with. And the truth is whatever you can make others believe. With Rokencore out of reach, Mueller's case grinds to a halt. He worked hard to get this far. He put a plan in play. And up to a point, the plan worked. He's got his hands on boxes of evidence that one day might succeed in putting Rokencore behind bars. But without Rokencore, he's got nothing. Then, one day in the fall of 97, the phone in Mueller's office rings. Mueller snatches up the receiver distractedly. There's a moment of silence. Then, a voice with a thick French accent says, Hello, George. It's him, Rokencore, and he's calling to tell Mueller he's back in L.A. The man's arrogance is breathtaking. This is the first time Mueller has ever heard Rokencore's voice, closest he's come to meeting him. Until now, both men have deliberately kept themselves out of each other's orbit. Mueller couldn't let Rokencore know he was investigating him, 
and naturally, Rokencore did everything he could to evade his adversary. And now, here's Rokencore actually picking up the phone and calling him. It's an audacious move to say the least. Mueller hears the other man chuckle. He's obviously enjoying himself. This is all a game to him, as the next words out of his mouth prove. You know, George, you're a good player. I'm a good player. If you'd actually meet me for tea, you would really like me. We could become friends. It sounds like a scene out of the 1995 film Heat, where LAPD detective Al Pacino and career criminal Robert De Niro sit down at a diner for a heart-to-heart. Is this how Rokencore sees himself? As a character in a stylish crime movie? For a split second, Mueller considers agreeing to meeting. It would be a chance to arrest Rokencore. Mueller knows Rokencore isn't serious. He's just playing with him. It's almost as if Rokencore can read his mind. If you do arrest me, I'll just bail out and flee the country anyways, he says. Then, the conversation takes a sinister turn. Rokencore asks about Mueller's children. Then, he casually mentions that he knows where the detective lives. As Rokencore hangs up, Mueller's blood runs cold. Now it's personal. Over the next few months, he continues meticulously picking through the evidence. By December 1997, he has enough to move forward on the passport fraud charge. Mueller arrests the government officials Rokencore bribed to get his illegal passport. They agree to cooperate, telling Mueller everything he wants to know about Rokencore's part in the conspiracy. It's Mueller's Al Capone moment. A warrant is issued for Rokencore's arrest. He is now officially a wanted man. And the signs are he's starting to feel the heat. As 1997 draws to a close, Rokencore moves in with the actor Mickey Rourke. It's just one of many bizarre twists in this extraordinary story. Though you'll remember, Rourke was one of the celebrities whose number Mueller found in Rokencore's planner. To this day, the actor refuses to comment on his friendship with the con man, but they were close enough to spend several months living and partying together. So what's Rokencore's plan? Maybe it's the old tactic of hiding in plain sight. Or maybe there is no plan. He's just caught up in a chaotic lifestyle that he can no longer control. Then, on the evening of March the 15th, 1998, the violence that is always simmering away in the background of Rokencore's life breaks out into the open. Rokencore's alone driving along La Cienega Boulevard. He pulls up outside Cafe Maurice, where he notices a group of men get out of a black Mercedes 500. He has an uneasy feeling. The night before, he got into an argument with a thick-set man at a nightclub in Hollywood. It took Rourke and the other guy's burly friends to pull him apart. He now recognizes the men getting out of the Mercedes as the ones involved in that altercation. The flight-or-fight instinct kicks in, and Rokencore sensibly decides on flight. He speeds away, but the men have seen him. 
they pile back into the Mercedes and tear off after him. As he speeds along the boulevard, Rokencore can see the other car closing in on him. Rokencore hits a red light at the junction of San Vicente and Santa Monica. There's nothing he can do but stop. The black Mercedes stops beside him. Another car, a white Hyundai, pulls up behind, blocking Rokencore in. A man gets out of the Hyundai and walks towards him. Suddenly, the sound of gunshots erupts in the air. Rokencore gets out of the car and runs off. As luck would have it, there's a sheriff's office nearby. Rokencore staggers in and tells the officers that he's been shot. The sheriff's deputies pounce on the scene of the crime. They examine the bullet holes in Rokencore's vehicle and find they've all been made from the inside. Not only that, the weapon that made them is Rokencore's own, a 40 caliber Glock, for which he doesn't have a permit. The man from the white Hyundai is tracked down to a local hospital where he's receiving treatment for a minor gunshot wound. Rokencore has no injuries. He's detained in a holding cell. Officers run his name and come up with the outstanding warrant for passport fraud. Back in George Mueller's tiny office by the elevator shaft, the phone rings. The call is from the L.A. County Sheriff's Office, notifying Mueller that a suspect by the name of Christopher Rokencore has been apprehended. Mueller's usually the consummate professional, restrained, disciplined, good at keeping his emotions in check. But this is a sweet moment. Mueller hasn't forgotten the day Rokencore threatened his children. And after all the work he's put in on this case, only to have Rokencore slip through his fingers. Now, at last, he has his man where he wants him, behind bars. Unfortunately, not for long. Sometimes the best detectives are let down by the system. It certainly seems to defy common sense that a suspect like Rokencore, a wanted swindler, liar, fraudster, con man, and a violent criminal should be granted bail. But that's what happens. Rokencore's wife, Pia Reyes, rushes to be with her husband and agrees to pay the lion's share of the $175,000 bail bond, with Rokencore's remaining friends stumping up the rest. Rokencore is released, awaiting trial. Then, as promised, he jumps bail and leaves town, disappearing into the wind. It's another cat-and-mouse moment. This time, Rokencore is the cat, and like all cats, he lands on his feet. It's two years before Rokencore resurfaces. He's in the Hamptons, on Long Island, New York, trading L.A. money bling for East Coast old money status. Christoph Rokencore reinvents himself as Christopher Rockefeller, a member of the phenomenally wealthy banking and industrial dynasty. Despite the rebrand, Rokencore's M.O. is familiar. He's seen in all the best restaurants and most fashionable nightclubs. The champagne corks pop. The Cuban cigars are handed round. The rich, the greedy, and the gullible are drawn into a seductive world. The money flows to Rokencore, supposedly for him to invest, as in L.A., it's all used to fund the high life. 
One man, Kevin McCrary, he's not taken in. McCrary is the friend of Rokencore's latest victim, a Dutch masseuse by the name of Corrine Eatlink. Corrine has already handed over $14,000 to the charismatic Rockefeller, and now she's gearing up to give him a further $125,000. But McCrary is suspicious. The thing is, McCrary is real old money. He knows a Rockefeller when he sees one, and he's pretty sure none of them have heavy French accents. McCrary goes to the police who put a tail on Rokencore, a.k.a. Rockefeller. When he skips out of his hotel without paying the $8,000 bill, a favorite grifter's oversight, they move in and arrest him. So is this the end of the road for the elusive con man? Has the mouse finally been caught in a trap? Surely the police in the Hamptons won't let him slip away this time. You'd think so, wouldn't you? But a delay in checking his fingerprints and another fake passport, this time in the name of Fabian Ortuna, fails to link him to his criminal past in L.A. Incredibly, Rokencore is granted bail again, this time set at $45,000, which he pays in cash. Predictably, he quickly disappears. When Mueller hears this news, he's speechless. How could they let him go again? It seems a combination of bad luck and bad judgment opened up a little crack, which Rokencore darted through. The mouse is on the run once more. It's April 2001. The phone on Mueller's desk is ringing again. Mueller's career is going well. He's moved on to another big case, investigating Suge Knight, the CEO of Death Row Records, rumored to have ordered the drive-by slaying of Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. the notorious B.I.G. There's some similarities with the Rokencore case, mainly the difficulty of getting witnesses to come forward. The DA's office is pursuing a similar tactic, to go after Knight for crimes they can prove without witnesses. In this case, parole violations. The work is challenging and absorbing. Mueller hasn't thought about Rokencore for months. That's the way it is. The case takes over your life completely. And then, when there's nothing more you can do, you move on to the next one. But now, as he picks up the phone, he hears a French-Canadian voice that takes him back to those days in 1997 and 98 when the French con man got under his skin and kept him awake at night. The caller is from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Mounties, and they're calling to tell Mueller that they've arrested Christophe Rokencore in Oak Bay, a seaside resort in British Columbia. Naturally, Mueller is eager to hear all the details. In November 2000, Rokencore had pitched up in Vancouver where he posed as a Dutch Formula One racing driver called Mikhail Vanhoven. He made the acquaintance of Robert Baldock, the CEO of a biotech and pharma corporation called Heartlink Canada. In typical Rokencore style, he didn't ask Baldock for anything, but instead promised to invest $5 million in his company. In return, Baldock and his wife, Norma, showered Rokencore with gifts and covered his expenses while he stayed in a series of first-class hotels. Unsurprisingly, 
the money for the investment never materialized, though Rokencore managed to swindle Baldock out of $170,000. He even sent Baldock on a wild goose chase to Switzerland to supposedly meet Van Hoven's father and bring back the funds. As Mueller listens to the sorry tale, he recognizes a classic Rokencore scam. But for once, the ending will be different. The game of cat and mouse is finally over. The RCMP officer assures him that Rokencore will not be granted bail. There's no chance he can get away this time. The officer is good as his word. In June 2002, at his trial in Vancouver, Rokencore is sentenced to two years imprisonment for defrauding the Baldocks. The sentence is reduced to time served, and he ends up spending a year behind bars. While inside, he passes the time writing an autobiography in which he ridicules the victims. A bold move that's well in keeping with Rokencore's outlandish personality. Maybe he thinks that all his legal troubles will be over once he's released from Canadian prison and writes the whole thing off as another one of his adventures. If that's the case, he's sorely mistaken. As soon as he gets out, he's extradited to the U.S. to stand trial in New York. There, he pleads guilty to charges of theft, grand larceny, perjury, and fraud. In September 2003, Rokencore is slapped with a $9 million fine in order to pay $1.2 million in restitution and a three-year prison sentence. Even so, Rogancourt isn't in the clear. He's extradited to the U.S. to stand trial for the crimes he committed there. The law is finally catching up with Christoph Rogancourt. Even though he wasn't the one to slap the cuffs on Rogancourt, Mueller's satisfied. In 2006, the LA Times reports him as saying, with him, it was catch me if you can, and we did. Mueller continues working in the small office by the elevator shaft. It may not be the most glamorous life, unless laboriously checking through phone records or financial receipts is your idea of glamour, but it has its rewards, especially on the days when men like Rokencore are brought to justice. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. We venture to a remote farmstead in Kansas in 1959, where four members of the Clutter family are tied up and killed in their own home. For Special Agent Alvin Dewey of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, this is personal. He knew the victims well. Was the killer someone local with a grudge against the father, Herb Clutter, or a faceless stranger who drifted into town on the interstate highway before vanishing the same way. Bloody footprints found at the scene of the crime are the detective's only real clue until a tip-off comes in that throws the case wide open. Join us as we investigate a crime that rips the heart out of the American heartland, the Clutter Family Murders. That's next week 